Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hey everyone, it's Patrick here. This is an episode from one of the friends of ITB, Spoonful of Sugar. So you can go to spoonfulofsugar.org to learn more about the Spoonful of Sugar podcast, which is a podcast for medical students by medical students. Each episode is hosted by a third or fourth year medical student who will review medical topics in bite-sized digestible pieces and integrate them across all different subjects. So they ask a lot of questions throughout the episodes to keep listeners engaged and break things down so they're easy to understand. And so like us, you have something to take with you to the exam center on test day. If you like this podcast, we love good ratings and reviews. They're certainly helpful for us in getting the word out. And, you know, it's always nice to get a word of encouragement. So enjoy. Hey, future doctors. Thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Rhea Mulherker. I'm currently a medicine intern in Philadelphia, and I will be your host today. I was asked recently to try and include some more GI-related topics on Spoonful of Sugar, and so that's why I've chosen to make today's episode about inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD. Before I get into the heart of the episode, uh, I do want to reiterate, I know I've said this on prior episodes, um, but again, I really think it's important that this podcast is designed for medical students and for other healthcare professionals um, to try and help review topics, help consolidate things, help connect things from the books to the wards. So if there are any topics that you would like to see covered on the podcast, then please, please reach out. You can reach out via social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram. You can reach out through the website. There's a contacts page, or you can directly email us at contact at spoonfulofsugar.org. Um, and we will certainly try to address the SOS topics that you guys would like to see covered on the podcast. Speaking of SOS moments, um, along the episode, I'm going to be asking lots of questions as always. And I really want to emphasize, again, I don't want anyone to be disappointed or disheartened if you don't know the answer to anything. Um, making mistakes, not knowing things, it's a part of learning. It's a part of gaining knowledge. And so... Um, I just want everyone to take this with a positive attitude, absorb what you will, and the more you learn, the better it is. So let's get started and talk about IBD. I want to start off um, with a little just reminder that IBD should not be confused with IBS. I know I did that frequently. Um, IBS refers to irritable bowel syndrome, and I'm not going to get too much into the details of it, but it's a completely different pathophysiology. I kind of think of it as anxiety of the bowels, um, but irritable, irritable bowel syndrome is a completely different disease. So inflammatory bowel disease actually refers to two pretty serious conditions, and it really just is an umbrella term for two different conditions. Do you guys know what those conditions are? So there is Crohn's disease and there's ulcerative colitis. And these are two separate conditions that together are referred to as inflammatory bowel disease. They both fall under this category of inflammatory bowel disease. 
both Crohn's as well as ulcerative colitis or UC, um, there are chronic conditions that require lifelong management and really they can lead to some very serious complications. I think it's really great to study them because they tie in a lot of different systems and associations. Um, and I also think it's really tough to study them because they have certain characteristic qualities. Um, and when you're learning them, it kind of all makes sense. Like, okay, okay, this is Crohn's, this is alternative colitis. But then for me, I would learn them as separate entities and then I would get to a test question and I would have a really hard time remembering which qualities were associated with Crohn's and which were associated with ulcerative colitis. And so really in this episode, my goal is to present both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis the way they might be seen in a clinical vignette, but then also juxtapose their particular characteristics and try and help you find silly ways to remember which characteristics apply to which disease so that when you see them on a test question or in real life, you already have a way to create that association and you don't get confused. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to start by introducing each disease as its own clinical vignette, and then we're going to really get into the nitty gritty and kind of differentiate um, Crohn's versus ulcerative colitis. So the first case I'd like to start with is a case of an 18-year-old male who comes in, presents with cramping abdominal pain. He has several weeks of non-bloody watery diarrhea. He's also endorsing some painful ulcers in his mouth, and additional information on review of systems reveals that he's having some joint pain, um, mainly in his knees and in his wrists. He also recently was in the emergency room uh, for a kidney stone. Do you guys know what the diagnosis might be here? So in this case, I'm going for Crohn's. And if you didn't get the answer right away, don't panic because we're going to kind of go through each of the findings. And then later on, we're going to go through kind of the entire um, pathophysiology and presentation of Crohn's as well. So I want to start by asking, I mean, I know, you know, there's a broad differential for any time a patient comes in with diarrhea. However, in this episode, we're really focusing on the inflammatory bowel diseases. So how do we know that this case is Crohn's rather than ulcerative colitis? There's really a few ways. So the first symptom I said that this patient had was diarrhea. Now, in Crohn's disease, diarrhea could be bloody or non-bloody. This patient happened to have non-bloody diarrhea. It's important to know, however, that in ulcerative colitis, the diarrhea is pretty much always going to be bloody. Um, The other symptom that he had was the mouth ulcers. Do you guys know what those were referring to? So there's a condition called stomatitis, which just refers to the aphthous ulcers in the mouth. And actually, this is kind of not actually specific to Crohn's. You can get, um, you can get mouth ulcers in both Crohn's as well as UC. The other symptom I described of joint pain is also not specific to Crohn's. You can get it in Crohn's or UC. So the mouth ulcers, joint pain, not really helpful in making the distinction. And then the last thing I said is that he was recently in the emergency room for a kidney stone. Do you guys know why a kidney stone would be connected with Crohn's? So so kidney stones, let me start by saying, are actually connected with Crohn's over UC. Do you know what kind of kidney stones you might get in Crohn's? So these are calcium oxalate stones. And I think that 
pathophysiology of how these stones are formed is actually really interesting. So oxalate is an end product of metabolism, and it normally binds calcium in the stool, and then it gets excreted as calcium oxalate in the stool. Now, patients with Crohn disease have malabsorption of fat. So there's a ton of fat that's stuck in the lumen of the GI tract in the intestines. And with high amounts of fat, the calcium actually preferentially binds fat. So oxalate is then free to get absorbed because it's no longer bound. So oxalate gets absorbed into the body and it ends up in the blood and it ends up getting filtered through the blood. And so really we have two ways of getting things out of our body. We have pee and we have poop. So poop is everything from the GI tract and pee is everything from the blood. So when oxalate gets absorbed, it ends up in the blood. We pee it out and um, it binds calcium in the kidneys then and it forms calcium oxalate kidney stones. I just think that's a really interesting pathophysiology and it helps me remember why we actually get calcium oxalate stones in uh, patients with Crohn's disease. Let's move on now and talk about the second case, also an 18-year-old male who's coming in with cramping abdominal pain, bloody diarrhea, and he's also endorsing back pain. On physical exam, you notice that he has redness of his eyes as well as sensitivity to light. And on his legs, you have the, he has reddish, tender nodules all over his legs. What's the diagnosis here? So this is easy. It's obviously ulcerative colitis, the second type of IBD. And I do want to remember, I do want you to remember that UC or ulcerative colitis is always going to have bloody diarrhea. So just think blood, you see it in UC. Blood, you see it. Now, how about the back pain in this patient? So ulcerative colitis is a condition that can be associated with ankylosing spondylitis. It's not really specific between UC versus Crohn's. It's another one of those nonspecific symptoms, but ankylosing spondylitis can be seen in patients with IBD in general. Do you guys remember what genetic marker is sometimes associated with IBD as well as ankylosing spondylitis? And there's two other ones. There's psoriasis and reactive arthritis. HLA B27. That's just kind of a random tidbit. It's pretty rare actually, but the HLA B27 gene um, can be seen in patients with psoriasis, ankylosing spondylitis, IBD, as well as reactive arthritis. There's a mnemonic pair, PAIR, for those four conditions. Now, what about this patient's light sensitivity and the redness of his eyes? What was I going for there? Do you know? Uveitis. This is another non-specific condition that can be seen in general in patients with IBD. And finally, the painful reddish nodules. So this is erythema nodosum. And again, it's a non-specific thing that you can see in patients with both Crohn's and UC. So the two cases that I described, really the biggest point I wanted to get across here is that bloody diarrhea is seen in ulcerative colitis, and the diarrhea in Crohn's can either be bloody or non-bloody. And the other thing I sort of pointed out that was specific to Crohn's was the kidney stones. And then there's sort of a lot of other kind of systemic, different extra-intestinal symptoms and conditions that you can see that are really nonspecific, and they can be associated with both types of IBD. 
So with that little introductory, you know, vignette, those two introductory vignettes in mind, let's move on now and let's move through the diseases step by step and kind of try to juxtapose the various traits of Crohn's versus ulcerative colitis. So let's start with the question, who gets these diseases? Like, what is the epidemiology of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis? In terms of age, both these diseases have kind of a bimodal distribution. So there's a subset of people that will get them at a young age, anywhere between 15 to 30 years. Um, And then some patients will get them later in life, like over the age of 60 usually. Another thing about both of these conditions is that they can be familial. So you may see some inheritance patterns. And then finally, ulcerative colitis is actually associated with Ashkenazi Jewish descent. And a fun fact here, do you know the relation between smoking and ulcerative colitis? So smoking actually lowers the risk of ulcerative colitis, which I think is pretty interesting fact. Still wouldn't recommend any patients to start smoking, but smoking is actually shown to reduce the risk of ulcerative colitis. My next question for you is how do these conditions happen? Like what is the actual pathophysiology? To kind of narrow down your thought process, think about what immune response mediates the two diseases and how is it different? What I'm going for here is that in Crohn's, it's really a Th1-mediated response. Remember that Th1 refers to cell-mediated immunity, so you're going to get a lot of T-cells infiltrating. When T-cells infiltrate, it forms a focal inflammation around the crypts of the intestines, and then you can actually sometimes get transmural inflammation, so it literally goes through the wall, Um, And you can get formation of non-caseating granulomas. Non-caseating granulomas are kind of an inflammatory process associated with T-cells. And then transmural inflammation is actually really, really important to understand for Crohn's disease. Do you guys know what transmural inflammation, can you imagine what that means? So if you have inflammation going all the way through the wall, you can imagine you're kind of forming a tunnel through a wall, through the wall of the colon. And anytime you form a tunnel, um, it, it can end up in having one organ getting connected to another organ. And do you know the name for that in the body? Anytime one hollow lumen is connected to another hollow lumen? It's called a fistula. So in Crohn's disease, the Th1 mediated immune response causes T cells to create transmural inflammation and it can end up causing a fistula and a fistula is one hollow organ connected to another hollow organ and you can see some pretty awful connections you can get colovesicular fistulas which refer to fistulas that connect the colon into the bladder you can also get colocutaneous fistulas which means that the colon literally gets connected into the skin and so you're dumping the contents of your GI tract onto the skin. I've actually seen this in patients and it's no good. It's so bad. Um you know, th- this requires surgery really to fix it. 
And then the other thing that you can get from the Th1 mediated inflammatory response inside of the colon is some small tears within the mucosa. These can cause linear fissures or circular fissures, um, and these fissures or tears can actually lead to a cobblestone-like appearance. So what they sometimes you'll sometimes see it described as a cobblestoning appearance, and all that means is there's a lot of different tears or fissures in the wall of the intestines, um, and it, it's just referred to as cobblestoning. And then finally, transmural inflammation is inflammation of the entire wall, and that can cause the wall to appear thicker. So something you might read about is if a patient were to do a barium swallow study, they would see a specific sign. It's called a string sign. And all that means is that when you see them swallow the barium, the lumen of the esophagus is actually going to be really narrow because the walls are thick from inflammation. So takeaway here is that Crohn's disease is associated with Th1-mediated or cell-mediated immunity, and key findings include non-caseating granulomas, transmural inflammation, cobblestoning of the mucosa, and you can get a string sign on barium swallow from thickening of the wall. Let's move on now to the pathophysiology of ulcerative colitis. So do you guys know what type of immune response facilitates ulcerative colitis? So this is going to be a Th2 mediated or a humoral response. And what does that mean? It means we're going to be bringing in B cells and B cells make antibodies. So what do we see here? We see findings of ulcers as well as crypt abscesses. Basically, inflammation is going to break down the walls of the crypts in the colon and it's going to fill it with neutrophils. Anytime something is filled with neutrophils, it literally creates pus, and that is called an abscess. So abscesses are full of neutrophils. So basically, the humoral response is going to attract a bunch of neutrophils, and they're going to collect and form these pus-filled abscesses, or crypt abscesses. The other thing you'll see is that the mucosa is very, very friable, and so you'll get a lot of ulcers, hence the name ulcerative colitis. And then finally, because of all this injury to the mucosa, you lose kind of the, the characteristic lining of the GI tract known as the haustra. And do you guys know what that might lead to on imaging? There's a specific finding. It's like a kind of a buzzword for ulcerative colitis that you see on imaging. You'll see a lead pipe appearance because you basically lose all those folds or the haustra that line the GI tract normally. So takeaway from ulcerative colitis is that it is a Th2 mediated humoral response and we see ulcers, crypt abscesses, and a buzzword is lead pipe appearance on imaging. Now how are you going to remember this? How are you going to remember that Crohn's is Th1 and ulcerative colitis is Th2? It's easy. Crohn's is one word, so Th1, and ulcerative colitis is two words, so Th2. Let's talk now about where the inflammation is actually found. Do you guys know where the inflammation is found in Crohn's disease? So most commonly, it's going to be found in the terminal ileum and in the colon. 
It's important to know that Crohn's disease, the inflammation can occur anywhere in the GI tract. You know, like from, think from head to butt, it can occur anywhere in the GI tract. And you'll see some skip lesions, um, meaning the inflammation is not necessarily contiguous. The other thing that's really important to know for Crohn's is that it is rectal sparing. So you will not see rectal involvement in Crohn's disease. And ulcerative colitis, do you guys know where the inflammation is found and how it is? It's kind of the opposite of Crohn's. So the important things to know for ulcerative colitis is that it is continuous inflammation and it usually is going to start at the rectum. So the rectum is always involved. So for ulcerative colitis, I want to remember, I want you to remember that you see blood and you see it in the rectum, okay? You see blood, you see it in the rectum, ulcerative colitis. Now, let's get into some of the complications of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Um, Again, I want to emphasize these are serious diseases, so the complications can be pretty dire. Um, What are some complications of Crohn's? So we kind of already talked about one of them, which is fistulas. Um, You can get connections between the colon or or anywhere in the GI tract, really, and other organs of the body. So colovesicular fistula, as you can imagine, would lead to recurrent urinary tract infections. You can get pneumaturia, which is like air in the bladder um, and air in the urine, so bad things. Uh, You can get colocutaneous fistulas as well, and the GI contents end up spilling um, onto the skin, and that can be really, really uncomfortable, painful, have terrible consequences as well. And then the other thing you can see is strictures within the tract because there's so much inflammation that you literally form a stricture and the contents of the GI tract can't pass through smoothly. And this leads to obstruction of the bowel. And obstruction can also be very, very serious and require surgical intervention. Now, what are some complications of ulcerative colitis? Can you think of any? The big one that I want you to know for ulcerative colitis is something called toxic megacolon. The inflammation causes the bowels to expand so much that you can't pass gas, and this condition can lead to perforation, which is another surgical emergency. So for UC, I want you to remember toxic megacolon. And then there are some complications that that are common to both types of IBD. This one should be really easy. Anytime there's chronic inflammation anywhere in the body, what can happen as a result of chronic inflammation, cells kind of dividing out of control in response to this inflammation? What am I getting at here? Cancer, cells dividing uncontrollably. So both types of IBD, Crohn's as well as UC, can lead to colorectal cancer. And it's actually recommended for these diseases that patients undergo screening colonoscopies every one to two years, about eight years after they get a diagnosis of um, Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. And then another complication that can happen is infection. Can you guys think of a common bug that causes diarrhea, especially in hospitals and patients who have been on antibiotics for a long time? The treatment for this is oral vancomycin. Clostridium difficile, or C. diff, very good. So C. diff is interesting because it's definitely a condition that should be on your differential if a patient has diarrhea, 
But it's important to know that just because a patient has diarrhea from Crohn's or ulcerative colitis doesn't mean they're not necessarily infected. So it could be on your differential, but you still should not rule it out in patients with Crohn's or UC. In fact, if they're having a flare, you should probably always test them for it because who knows, they might be on treatment, they could be immunosuppressed, and they can always be at risk of infection too. So it's really important to identify if your patients with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis have C. diff infection. Now let's talk about some extra intestinal manifestations of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. And I kind of alluded to this earlier um, during the case vignettes, but there are a lot of extra intestinal manifestations that are common to both. So patients can get rashes, such as erythema nodosum, which I described. They can get eye involvement, such as uveitis. They can also get arthritis, and one type is ankylosing spondylitis. So these, these different conditions like rashes, eye involvement, joint pain, they're kind of systemic signs of inflammation, and they can be seen in both patients with Crohn's and UC. Now, there are some conditions that you should really just associate with one or the other, and I'd like to spend some time on that now. So if a patient comes in and is complaining of intense colicky flank pain, they have blood in the urine, what is this? What, did, what do you think I'm getting at here? A kidney stone. And we sort of talked about this already. Which condition, Crohn's or UC, is associated with kidney stone? Crohn's. And do you guys remember what type of stone? Calcium oxalate. Very good. Now, what if a patient is complaining of colicky pain in their right upper quadrant, which occurs more often after they eat? I'm going for gallstones here. And do you guys know which type of IBD gallstones are associated with? These are also associated with Crohn's disease. So, what happens in Crohn's is you get decreased reabsorption of bile, and so the bile that you do have gets super saturated with cholesterol, and then you end up getting cholesterol stones. So how are you going to remember this? It rhymes. Crohn's equals stones. So remember that Crohn's disease can have complications including kidney stones and gallstones, and these are kind of specific to Crohn's. Crohn's equals stones. Now, what if I describe a middle-aged man who has a diagnosis of IBD and he's presenting with jaundice, he's had a history of dark urine as well as light-colored stool, he's really itchy everywhere. I'm describing a biliary tract disease that's causing obstructive um, physiology. Do you guys know what I'm getting at here? Primary sclerosing cholangitis. Very good. Do you guys know which condition primary sclerosing cholangitis is associated with? Ulcerative colitis. There's actually a common genetic marker that's seen commonly in ulcerative colitis and associated with primary sclerosing cholangitis. Do you guys know what that is? It is P-ANCA or antimyeloperoxidase. Now, I'm really stretching my mnemonic device here, but remember I said blood, you see it. Rectal involvement, you see it. Pianca, you see it. That's how I want you to remember that blood, rectal involvement, and pianca are associated with UC or ulcerative colitis. You see it. Now, 
Sorry for that horrible way of remembering, but hopefully it stuck. Let's talk about the treatments of inflammatory bowel disease. Anytime you have chronic inflammation anywhere, there's one drug that should come to mind or one class of drugs that should really always come to mind. Do you guys know what I'm getting at here? Steroids. Anytime you have inflammation of, like anytime you have chronic inflammation anywhere, steroids are probably not going to be a wrong answer. Um, And then there's a specific type of agent that's used in patients with IBD. They're called the 5-ASA or aminosalicylic agents, um, such as mesalamine. They basically reduce inflammation by reducing production of prostaglandins. There's also a bunch of immune-modulating agents that we don't really need to get into, but anytime you have immune-modulating agents, these can be immunosuppressive and increase your risk of infection, like we kind of talked about earlier. And then a lot of times, unfortunately, in patients with IBD, surgery may be necessary to address certain complications. Colectomy is actually a cure for one of these two diseases. Do you guys know which one? Ulcerative colitis. So colectomy can be curative for ulcerative colitis. And I'm talking about total colectomy. So obviously, it's not ideal to have your entire colon stripped out. But it's important to know that Ulcerative colitis could theoretically be cured, whereas Crohn's, it's not really a cure because remember, it's not just in the colon, it can happen anywhere in the GI tract. So that actually brings us to the end of everything I wanted to discuss for Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Um, I think this topic is actually hard. It's hard to remember the differences between Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. I feel like each of them is easy enough to learn on its own. But then when you're presented with an actual patient or a test question, it's easy to kind of mix up things and mix up associations. You have to create associations between certain characteristics and the type of IBD in order to be able to spot the differences on exam and, you know, get the, te- get the test question right, diagnose the patient correctly. And really, my goal here is I just don't want you to get stumped on the test. You're presented with a vignette. They say something like cobblestoning, and you're like, oh, no, I don't remember. Is that Crohn's or is that UC? So really quickly, I'm going to go through a rapid fire. Um, I'm going to say something, and you tell me if it's Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, or both. Let's start with mouth ulcers. It can be seen in both. Skip lesions. Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, the inflammation is contiguous, whereas in Crohn's you can see skip lesions. Rectal involvement, UC. Remember, the rectum or rectal involvement, you see it in UC. Non caseating granulomas, Crohn's, because remember they're associated with that Th1 cell mediated immune response. Kidney stones and gallstones. Crohn's. Remember, Crohn's equals stones. Crypt abscesses. UC, because that Th2 humoral response leads to neutrophils filling up the crypts, creating abscesses. Bloody diarrhea. Both. Remember, it's always going to be bloody for UC, but it can potentially be bloody in Crohn's. Primary sclerosing cholangitis. This is associated with UC. Colorectal carcinoma. That could happen in both. And fistulas. 
Those are really seen in Crohn's from the transmural inflammation. Great job, guys. Um, If you made it through that rapid fire, congratulations. If you missed stuff along the way, not to worry. Um, I know it's really hard to make these associations and have them stick. I really hope that this review was helpful. Uh, I hope that some of the silly mnemonics stuck. Blood, you see it. Rectal involvement, you see it. Pianka, you see it. Silly things like that. Um, But I also really hope that explaining the different pathophysiology of things, like why we get calcium oxalate stones and gallstones and Crohn's disease, I hope that was helpful to you to kind of help, help explain why you see what you see. I really think the key to mastering the material for step one exam is being able to explain things um, and being able to associate them with with other things. For example, the Pianka, the PSC, the UC. It's really important to be able to make these key associations. And I think the key to making the associations is being able to understand why they are the way they are. So I know that was a little bit long-winded there, um, but I I hope it made sense to you guys. And I I really, really hope that this was a helpful review for you. Again, if there are any topics that you'd like to see covered, please let us know. Um, If there are any, you know, if you have any constructive criticism about how we can make things better, how we can help you guys out more, please let us know. I want to thank you guys so much for listening. If you're finding these episodes helpful, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast. We always appreciate follows, likes, ratings, reviews. If you're a third or fourth year med student, you've taken step one and you're interested in working with us and recording an episode, please reach out at contact at spoonfulofsugar.org. And I want to end by saying that SOS does not just have to be a cry for help. It can also stand for spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. 